So, good evening. I, my name is Mary Morgan. I'm the Albert O. Hirschman Professor of History and Philosophy of Economics at the LSE, and I teach in the Economic History Department. I'm extremely pleased to be here to welcome Professor Joel Mokia uh, to the LSE. He's the Robert H. Strotz Professor of Arts and Sciences and Professor of Economics and History at Northwestern uh, University. He is um, a very, uh, has many honours and prizes to his name, um, but I think uh, the most important thing is to have a, an insight into the kinds of things he's interested in. And he's worked uh, and published mainly in economic history and demography on the Irish famine, British Industrial Revolution, and particularly on technical change. And one of the great things about Joel's work is he really takes on the great big questions uh, and uh, tries to really understand some of these great big thematic problems uh, that we have had and, and, and worry about in economic history. So Joel today will be talking about um, the great divergence, the rapid economic and technological growth between 1500 and 1950, that gave the West the opportunity to dominate and perhaps oppress and exploit the rest of the world. His lecture uh, is going to answer a simple but really difficult question to answer, which is how are they able to do that? So the title of Joel's lecture is Knowledge as a Source of the Great Divergence, and it's part of the Hayek Lecture Programme at the LSE. A couple of preliminaries. Um, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag um, for the today's events is um, LSE Economics. Um, the online event is this, this, this online event is being recorded and will become available as a podcast, providing we have no technical uh, difficulties going on. As you to submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. The questions will come through to me and I will try and gather them to, together to, to ask, to put them to Joel. When you ask a question, we'd love it if you would put your name and affiliation because we're particularly keen to hear from our students and alumni. So please let us know who you are. Now, I'm really delighted to hand over to Joel for his lecture, Knowledge as a Source of the Great Divergence. Thank you, Joel. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Mary, for that gracious introduction and thank you LSE for the honor of inviting me to this uh, lecture. Uh, let me get straight to the point because I have a lot of slides and I want to leave time for questions. But I wanted to motivate this talk in as provocative a way that I could think of. So let me ask an extremely naive and some of you will say silly question, but here it is. So we have experienced for the last year or so, you know, and a very notable wave of protests against racial injustice and discrimination, the Black Lives Matters movement and all that. So, you know, and an economist would ask a really naive question, and that is, why really wasn't it the other way around? Okay, why is it, for instance, that we see almost no cases in which black people had white slaves? Um, we don't see African and Asian empires uh, colonizing parts of Europe. And, you know, the history is, is quite clear on this. You know, for the past, say, 400 or so years, Europeans have dominated and subjugated and enslaved and exploited much of the rest of humanity in multiple ways that have all been well documented. And I think the remnants of that highly asymmetrical relation are what I think at the base of today's relation. And that's not just in the U.S., of course, where this is well documented, but it's the same almost everywhere. You go to a place like Brazil and you realize that Afro-Brazilians are against. And even in Europe, where black slavery was never introduced on any serious scale, we still observe the same in which, you know, as everybody knows, people of African and Asian descent are discriminated against and disadvantaged by white people, all the way from mortgage lenders to pro police brutality and everything um, in between, what is the source of this inequality? I mean, that people, in fact, rarely ask that. Also, it seems to be a pertinent question. Now, I want to start off right away saying there's nothing inherent in whiteness, whatever that is, or in that, say, in European culture, such as, say, Christianity or the legacy of the Greek and Roman learning, 
or even European geography that would easily explain it. You know, much less, of course, bogus theories have to do with genetics or biology, which I, I won't even talk about. And the evidence for that is really decisive. Okay? The smoking gun here is that it hasn't always been so. That in the year 1000 AD, say, you know, white Christian Europe was comparatively an ignorant, impoverished and violent backwater Whereas the world of Islam and the world of the Song Dynasty in China at roughly that time were sophisticated and literate societies that made major advances in a host of fields in medicine, mathematics, engineering, philosophy, literature, and so on. And, you know, even in Africa, you know, they look at the glorious trading city of Songomnara in, 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 in the 13th to 15th century off the Tanzanian coast. It's another example. And so perhaps we shouldn't really talk about the great divergence, as Ken Pomeranz called it, between the West and the rest. We should really perhaps talk extreme thing. And so why? Well, what, what's driving that? I mean, it seems an obvious question. Um, if it's not biology and if it's not geography, it must be history in some way. So at some time, Europeans acquired a mysterious advantage over non-European people that allowed this inequality to emerge. And that's what created early colonialism in the 16th, 17th century and modern imperialism of the 19th century and the current gaps in wealth and living standards and political power between white and non-white people, both between economies and within each economy. Now, there's an irony here, which I just mentioned on the, uh, uh, in passing, which is that the long-term effects of this actually are, are quite ambiguous. It's true, Europeans were able to dominate people elsewhere in the world and did unspeakable things. And yet, the descendants of these subjugated people today are far richer than their ancestors, thanks in large part to European technological and economic success. And so, Deirdre McCloskey has called this a sort of historical watershed, the great enrichment, because it emphasizes the sort of worldwide rise in living standards, which by now is, 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 is very well documented. And yet the racial divides are still there. And these, I think, are the persistent legacies of the great reversal. And so if you had to sum up the origins of the great divergence and the great reversal and the great enrichment in one word, what would it be? And I would pick... You know, a somewhat, you know, a, a antiquated term called, which I call useful knowledge. And I'll explain a little bit what I mean by that. I want to point out that sort of on the eve of the Industrial Revolution, in the, the Age of Enlightenment, this was an extremely popular term that, that, that kept people thinking. So here's an engram of useful knowledge and useful arts. And you can sort of see that, that the experience already arise in the second half of the 17th century, there's a little dip here, but then, you know, in the 18th century, it rises and, you know, it, 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 it sort of follows a little bit the path of the Industrial Revolution here after 1750 or 1760, and then it sort of peaks off um, uh, in, in, the, in the early 19th century. But this is obviously something that people were aware of and were thinking about. So the 18th century and basically called useful knowledge is the ability to control and manipulate natural phenomena and regularities and harness them for the material advantages of humans. Now, as I noted, in the Middle Ages, there's no sign that Europeans had much of an advantage, even say as late as 1250 uh, AD. And these other civilizations, even, you know, at that time, were more advanced in science and technology and better educational infrastructure, higher literacy rates, you know, more sophisticated state capacity and governance. And insofar we can measure that, uh, more human capital. But by the 18th century, say, at the very onset of the Industrial Revolution, there is a gap. So here's a very famous quote from Samuel Johnson um, and in his sort of book about this Abyssinian prince, Rasselas. And so the prince, the, the African prince, asked his European philosopher friend in 1759, so this is just on the eve of the Industrial Revolution, and he says this, by what means are the Europeans thus powerful, or why, since they can so easily visit Asia and Africa for trade or conquest? Cannot the Asians and Africans invade their coast, plant colonies in their ports? After all, the same winds that carried them back would bring us, the Africans, thither. And the answer that was provided was this, quote, they are more powerful than we saw because they are wiser, always predominant over ignorance. 
But why their knowledge is more than ours, I know not. Emphasis added. So I'm going to try to answer the question in red. And if we do that, I think we start figuring out why this is happening. Now, did Europeans really know more than others? Now, knowledge, of course, is not a countable thing. So actually talking about the level or amount of social knowledge uh, isn't, isn't, isn't quite easy to compare. But we can say something at least about what kind of knowledge emerged and what kind of questions intellectuals were interested in and how much of an impact they had on the world of production and uh, uh, economics. And so... The answer to Prince Rasselas' question then is going to be summarized by two words, you know, and I call this attitudes and aptitudes. And these are the two terms that will be the key to this lecture, okay? And these are the results of changes that occur in Europe in the sort of three centuries before Dr. Johnson wrote these works. And so here is the main take-home point, I guess. So during the centuries that we refer to as early modern Europe, which is roughly bookmarked between Columbus and the death of Newton in 1727, Europeans developed cultural features that drove them to acquire the kind of knowledge that gave them abilities. And so, as I said, I'm going to talk about attitudes and aptitudes, and let me start with attitudes. So it's hard to think that this growth in useful knowledge can happen independent of, you know, some sort of, you know, somewhat vague blob of stuff that we call culture, which includes epistemological beliefs, preferences, values, knowledge, and what on. And so between 1450 and 1700, so roughly speaking, transformations were taking place in Europe, one of which was that the idea of progress and improvement slowly became part of the dominant culture. So this is another engram, and this is just a, a word of progress and improvement. And you can sort of see here that this starts already in the sort of first half of the 17th century starts rising, and then it rises more or less monotonically until about 1800, which is sort of a nice inflection point at the time of the Industrial Revolution, which looks like I've planted it, but I didn't. So this is kind of, kind of, kind of rising. You see that this is on people's minds, thinking and believing in progress. But, of course, a mere belief in progress is neither necessary nor a sufficient condition for bringing it about. You, know, you need other changes in attitudes before it can translate into actions. Let me talk about some of those. And there are three important attitudes. There are more than that and I could add to this list, but I've picked three because I think they're central, but uh, I'm more than open to people complaining about it, that I left something out. The first is skepticism. So by 1450, the Europeans had rediscovered much of the learning of ancient Greece and Rome and that they realized that there was a lot of wisdom and learning there. But then they also came to the conclusion that there was a lot of error. Now, in the Middle Ages, much of this stuff had been known. And, um, you know, most medieval European intellectuals, with some important exceptions I should add quickly, believed strongly that there's a canon of classical knowledge, especially the work of the great philosophers of the scientary, above all, Aristotle, but also Ptolemy and Pliny and Galen and, you know, others. That this is really sacrosanct. But I think by the late 15th century, this became more and more uh, criticized. And certainly by 1700, you know, the, the sort of the standard people we all learn about in, in high school, but in the history of science, have really created a new science and that and some of them dismissed the classical canon with some, I would say, contempt. So, you know, here's just a couple of quickie examples. Okay, I like this in particular. This is an Italian doctor called Niccolo Leonicenno, who published, in, and this is 1509, this is fairly early, published a book called The Erroribus Pliny, you know, the, on the errors of Plinius, okay? And in fact, a few decades later, the French philosopher Pierre de Larabé wrote his dissertation on the errors of Aristotle. And then, you know, by, the, by 1600, you have people like Francis Bacon and William Gilbert in England, but elsewhere as well, basically you know, almost being disrespectful to classic, you know, Bacon basically, you know, the, the Greek writers of science have characteristics of a child and Gilbert and the Magnetic basically said, I'm not going to bother quoting the ancients because they didn't know anything, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but that's what it boils down to. Now, this is, this is unthinkable in 1350, but by the 1600, that's very much part of the way of people thinking. And so I would... Uh, Without skepticism, there could be no progress. 
and that sacred cows have to be slaughtered. And in fact, this, is con this contestability of knowledge is, of course, famously captured in the slogan of the Royal Society in Nullius Verba, which is on no one's word. And, you know, maybe symptomatic of this is that in the mid-17th century, even the Holy Bible itself didn't escape this passionate textual analysis from such admittedly heterodox intellectuals such as Spinoza and Hobbes, even so clerics of various types, of course, objected to strenuously. And, you know, but it's all about skepticism. You know, Diderot, for me, this sort of emblematic uh, uh, Enlightenment philosophy was, you know, Lynn Hunt, who's you know, a great expert on this, called him the man who questioned everything. And that is very much typical of intellectuals at that time. Now, to be sure, traditionalists resisted, and both of them, as in these, these two camps, War is what the French called the, the querelle des anciennes et des modernes, uh, a battle between the ancients uh, and the moderns. Hands down, certainly by the late 17th century, these great scientists had hammered the last nails in the coffins of ancient physical science. And, you know, the Copernican universe was ac accepted, but it's more than physics, you know, it's, it's for instance, Harvey and the falseness of the Galenic model of blood circulation. It's Francesco Redi, these are his dates, who showed convincingly that the Aristotelian belief in spontaneous generation was wrong, and, you know, on and on. And I think this is perhaps symptomatic of European exceptionalism, if I may use that term. You know, in other civilizations, each in their own way, um, the traditionalists basically won the day. So in China, in the Muslim world, in India, even for my own ancestors, which is Jewish civilization in Europe before 1750, um, this sort of skepticism is really very thin and, and, and very little, you know. And I would say in those civilizations, the, the tenacious past still has an iron grip on intellectuals. And what, maybe we should call this intellectual ancestor worship. And that keeps blocking and slowing down intellectual knowledge. Intellectuals were heavily engaged in exegesis and philology. And if you wanted to know something, you really have to dig deeper and see where in the you know, canon and what did the ancient sages really mean. Within that, of course, there's still room for dispute, but it's dispute that is heavily constrained. So we know when this sort of happened, you know, it wasn't always like that, but in the Islamic world, there's sort of what's known as a, a sunny revival, as Eric Cheney has called it, you know, and I think this is right, this is, goes back, among others, to the work of Al-Ghazali in the 12th century, and which steers Islam into a more conservative direction in which there's a more literal interpretation of the Quran and the Hadith, and in which the sort of philosophy, the falsafa, was regarded in this increasing hostility. Something comparable, maybe not similar, but at least comparable, is the Neo-Confucian revival in China at roughly the same time, around 1200, under particularly in the influence of the great philosopher Zhu Qi, which leads to a more backward-looking intellectual culture. And so Europe goes, as I said, in the other direction. Now, it's not so clear why this skepticism is there, but I can throw some ideas at you. The first is, I think that ancestor worship in any form is much less prevalent in Europe than elsewhere, in large part because by that time, the sort of um, average European lived in small nuclear families rather than in larger clans. Uh, it's also too, and I'll come back to that a little bit later, that the forces of reaction, those who were protected, the ancien, the ancients, had a hard time coordinating the suppression of heretics, because of the polycentric nature of Europe, European politics. And I'll still come back to that. The other two things that are important, of course, are the global voyages. So by 1500, the Europeans started to make people realize that the world wasn't quite what the Greeks had described. If they were wrong about that, what else were they wrong at? Okay? And then in around 1600, new scientific instruments uh, come online, the telescope, the microscope, the vacuum pump, barometer, and so on. And, you know, the European scientists could say, look, these Greeks were great, but they didn't have the tools we have. So we know more. All right. So that's one of the attitudes. Number two, openness. So Europeans from early time on, I think we're willing to learn from others. I think they adopted, or if you want, stole ideas and then went on to approve them. 
So this is already a medieval phenomenon, but after 1500, when they start traveling around the world, they adopted a great deal of technological knowledge, including how to make Indian cottons, Chinese silks and porcelain, and of course, grow many crops that they picked up in the Western Hemisphere. Okay, this is known to the, as the Colombian Exchange. And, um, you know, they, they made no secret of this. You know, they went out there in the world in part, not entirely, of course, but in part to learn and then copy and adopt new forms of technology and medicine. And that's known as, as I said, the Colombian Exchange. So you know, when Europeans go overseas, they do all these unspeakable things, right? They forcibly convert others to Christianity. They pillage, steal, spread contagious disease at a massive scale and enslave people if they could to grow them the crops of European desire. But they did something else. They also learned and then copied techniques, crops and, and technological ideas from other societies and not just for themselves, but they spread them around the world in some kind of technological arbitrage. And this is really a, a striking phenomenon. It really goes back to the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, most of the inf interface that Europe had with non-European societies was with the Islamic world. And they happily adopted all kinds of things from the uh, Islamic world, including women, numerals, as well as indirectly and less easy to document gunpowder and the compass from the Chinese. But it's also quite obvious that if you go to a uni European university in the Middle Ages, you study Islamic authorities, you know, you studied medicine of, of Al-Razi, known as Razis in the West, and Ibn Sina. Western med medieval medicine, you know, never any, any qualms about adopting the writings of Muslims as the core of the medical canon. Um, but it's also true for astronomy and, and optics, for instance, as the work of Ibn al-Haytam, and even in philosophy, you know, the, the great influences on Thomas Aquinas you know, in, in, in his Summa Theologica and, and he cites him. Is this Islamic writer Ibn Rushd Averroes, you know, widely regarded to be one of the great philosophers uh, of all time. And so the fact that he was a Muslim was of no concern to anybody. And so language actually reveals this indebtedness and that the Europeans were not at all ashamed about it. So we, we speak about Arabic numerals, never mind that they weren't Arabic, but that's Point. But, you know, words that start with A-L, like alcohol and algebra, came from Arabic. And, you know, they also grew turkeys in the mistaken belief that turkeys came from the Middle East or from India, which is why the French call it done, but that's not right either. It came from the New World. And, you know, they're sipping tea from what they called China, where they grew. They were wearing damasks and calicoats coming from Asia and practiced techniques called Japanic. I mean, this is, this, they're perfectly open about this. What is striking? is that this route is mostly one way. Not entirely ever, but mostly one way. And after 1200, there was little in sort of Western culture that Islam adopted, um, unless it was for a very specific purpose, like firearms. And some inventions, especially, of course, famously printing, were resisted by Islamic society for centuries. And the same in different ways was true for China and Japan after 1600. And much of that isn't really half of the... 19th century. Uh, and so Europeans may have been imitators, but as David Landis famously said, good imitators make good innovators. So maybe the most famous example and close to what everybody here is familiar with is cotton. So cotton, of course, is entirely important from the raw materials import from outside Europe. Um, and first they import cotton cloths from, from the Middle East and then, of course, from India. But then, you know, eventually they learned to spin and weave it themselves, and then they learned to bleach it and print it, and they were just importing the raw materials. And they got really good at it, of course, and that's the standard story of the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, Barbara Hahn recently put it very nicely. She said, European fabric producers competed with Asian specialty textiles until the substitute obliterated the industry it was designed to imitate. And that's kind of a striking thing. Now, Europeans... I think our open-mindedness at the same time that they are just as bigoted and racist as anyone else. And this is almost a paradoxical characteristic, but it's there. They were willing to adopt foreign ideas and studied foreign civilizations and languages. So here, here's one example I like. This is in the year 1613, Leiden University uh, established one of the first chairs of Arabic language and culture. So its first occupant was a man called Thomas Erpenius or Van Erpe. These are his, his, his dates. 
And in his inaugural lecture, he, he states this quite a phrase, Arab culture has a world of wisdom to teach. And I would be very surprised if there was an Islamic madrasa in which they said the same thing about European culture. And that, I think, is a major asymmetry. So again, why was this? And, and part of the answer must have been, again, that Europe was deeply fragmented uh, around different fault lines. And so this interstate competition meant that every polity felt they had to run to stay in place lest others get ahead of them. And so this fragmentation isn't just between states, it's between dynasties, it's between cities, it's between universities, it's between religions. Europe is a very competitive place. And in a competitive place, you know, you always want to maintain your competitive position. All right. The third here I'm on thinner ice, but I'm going to go anywhere. And that's neophilia. So it's been argued uh, in a book by, by, by a man called Tony Huff, Toby Huff, sorry, Toby Huff, that Europeans were more curious than other civilizations, specifically he talks about China. Now that's hard to support since there's no good metric for curiosity, but we can say something about the development of attitudes toward curiosity. So in early Christianity, you know, curiositas, as St. Augustine called it, you know, is on his list of vices, you know, this is, you know, this is a sin. Now, now, this is many centuries later, but he's often held uh, equally responsible for the condemnation of curiosity. But if you look at the fine print, you see that he actually distinguished between different kinds of knowledge that were virtues to pursue and those that were not. Now, in early modern Europe, in the centuries following Aquinas, you can see this slow transformation that turns curiosity to a virtue, especially, I think, for the elites. And so Renaissance courts and academies actually had these, what I call curiosity cabinets, okay, which display exotic animals and plant specimens and antiques and so on. And uh, they saw this new knowledge as a sort of a symbol of, of a superiority and power of the ruling classes. And I think that's, uh, that, that's quite telling. Now, from St. Augustine and, and St. Thomas, and I have to give you this quote, I'm very, I'm very fond of it. It's a long way to Francis Bacon, who writes in a great inspiration that, you know, warns his readers not to fall into the error of thinking that the quote, the inquisition of nature is in any part interdicted or forbidden. And he cites with approval in Proverbs 25.2, which states, and I translated this back from the Hebrew, it is the honor of God to conceal a thing and the honor of kings to investigate that. Um, I think that's kind of, that's kind of neat. And, uh, you know, Thomas Hobbes went, of course, even further and argued that, you know, man is distinguished by, quote, a lust of the mind, that by a perseverance of delight in the continual and indefatigable generation of knowledge exceeds the short vehemence of any carnal pleasure, you know. Somebody forgot to tell the Northwestern undergraduates about that, but, you know, this is how people were thinking uh, in the 17th century. And the, the most eminent historian of science of our age, I think, Lorraine Daston, put it very nicely. She says, moralists continue to thundering and potentially dangerous interest, but the decibel level of their complaints suggests that by the late 17th century, they were on the defensive indeed. And so, of course, you need incentives for intellectual innovators. And this is where I think Europe is, is quite unusual. You know, people who came up with new ideas, and this is not just in the sciences and technologies, it's in the art and in literature, often were rewarded and enjoyed high status. You know, none more so, you know, than the great uh, Isaac Newton, of course, becomes something of a, of a national hero and remains so for, for, for until the present day. Many others as well. And what emerges in Europe, I think, is a competitive market for both ideas and for the people who produces them. And so what you get is a very lively and vibrant market for ideas, one in which intellectual innovators competed fairly for reputation and threw them for patronage jobs and sinecures. But at the same time, the patrons computed for the most celebrated scholars and artists on the time. So both on the supply and on the demand side, you have a highly competitive system. And, you know, and here, if I may quote the, the Talmud here, you know, the, uh, it says, the jealousy of the learned shall increase wisdom. And that, I think, is a good answer to Dr. Johnson. So, you know, what's on the demand side? So rulers and, 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 and bishops uh, wanted to have famous intellectuals uh, because 
on the Etta courts because they brought them prestige. Now, in fact, many of these resident scholars were expected to be useful and provided knowledge that helped these patrons, medicine, navigation, ballistic, uh, astrology, and so on, and even served as tutors and counselors. And so it, 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 I think it's a good example, so maybe a little bit of a stretch here, but it's a good example of the blessings of a well-functioning competitive market. And institutions that make this market possible, and I've written about that at great length in my 2016 book, is this network of scholars who refer to themselves as the Republic of Learners and um, who basically distribute information and created this kind of community that gives intellectual identity of a scholar. But it also serves as some kind of clearinghouse for information of who did what. And so this is what creates a reputation. And uh, so this is, of course, a world uh, in which there are more and more innovations being proposed. Some of them were developed by Europeans and some, as I said, adopted from elsewhere. Now, mind you, not all these ideas were good. Okay? Many of them were total bogus or just mistaken. You know, we did not invent fake news and pseudoscience in America under the Trump regime. Um, they were just as common then as they're, they're now. You know, astrology and numerology and, and other things were, were popular. And yet there is clear progress towards things that worked. And when something is really believed to work, you know, it can be put to good want to do. So here's the most famous example, and let me just go through this very quickly. But this is a sort of, a, 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 I think, quite symptomatic of the age. So the big breaks, breaks what happens here in 1643. This is Evangelista Torricelli in 1643 for the first time proves the existence of an atmosphere, you know. And then a, a few years later, we have Robert Boyle, you know, perfecting the, uh, the vacuum uh, chamber and proving once and for all that, you know, vacuum can exist. And these two ideas that I'm put together with some more stuff by a Frenchman called Denis Papin in this first model of a steam engine, and that leads almost directly, I would think, to Newcomen's engine of 1712, and the rest is history. So this is, I think, one example I could give you more, but it's the best. So, again, what explains European neophilia? And, you know, here, I want to throw in sort of one more thing that, that, that really matters, okay? Every society always have people who think outside the box. But the outcomes differ because the incentives and the risks differ. So in this age, you know, being innovative and iconoclastic, of course, carries the risk of being accused of heresy and apostasy and all this blasphemy, all these horrible things. And, you know, in early modern Europe, it's no secret, you know, they persecuted many innovators and executed a few. The most famous, of course, is the Galileo trial, but there were many others. But to be successful on a continent-wide scale, these reactionary policies required coordination by the entities that enforce these reactionary policies. Reactionary is an anachronistic term, but I'll use it anyway. Um, and so lacking that, intellectual innovators could compete in powers against one another and move between different political entities. And so many did. And so one irony is that it's possible that Europe's growth was in part the result of this massive coordination failure. So here are three examples. I'll just go them through very quickly because um, purpose of time, but this is a, this, these were all in some ways troublemakers. This is Tommaso Campanella who got into trouble with the Habsburgs and then you know, was kept alive. Um, the Emperor Rudolf and eventually found his way to France where he became a celebrity. This here is Komensky, who traveled all through Europe, you know, and he moved from Moravia to Poland to England, always running away from people trying to, to, to shut him up. And he effectively died in Amsterdam and was even offered the presidency of Harvard University in 1636, which he wisely turned down. And this here is Pierre Bayle, another a Frenchman, a, Cal a Calvinist who fled France to go to Holland. And so people move around, which makes suppression essentially impossible. And so as a result, basically the persecution of, if you want to call them deviants or heterodox people, sort of slowly, slowly fades. And the 18th century is still there, but it's really little more than window dressing. It's not because rulers became necessarily more tolerant and enlightened, but because it was pointless. <laughs> and so what emerges is this comparatively free, open and pluralist competitive market for ideas that generate this rising tide of innovations. Now, I want to emphasize that this historical phenomenon is not inevitable or inexorable, 
nor was it designed or intended. It was sort of a contingent outcome of very different events, and it's sort of a classic, what we call the aggregate due to interactions between actions of the components. All right, so much for attitudes. Now I have a little bit of time for left for aptitudes, and, let me, and then I'll try to bring these things together. So what constrained the effectiveness of new ideas? Now, this is an age in which there are new, lots of great technological ideas were proposed, but not most of them couldn't be realized. Okay, the most famous of that, and you've all seen this, this is a Leonardo da Vinci he, uh, drawing. He drew hundreds of pictures of technological ideas, many of which were technologically sound, but they couldn't be built. And the reason they couldn't be built, here are two more, which I like very much, this is a little bit later. This is the first submarine ever built by a Dutchman called Cornelius Drebbel. This is in London, by the way. Uh, and this is Blaise Pascal's mechanical calculator from 1642. So these are ideas that actually were shown to be workable, but never came to be as significant as it became later, simply for one reason. Uh, and that is workmanship and materials. And these two are forms of useful knowledge, different than the ones I talked about before, not part of the Republic of Letters, because they're largely sort of based on what's known as tacit knowledge, right? And it's, it's not ever written down. It couldn't be actually expressed in most, most of the time. But it's acquired through personal contact, through uh, apprenticeship primarily. And here, too, I submit to you that Europe slowly gained an advantage. So as late as 1400, these comparisons are a bit dicey, as I am the first to admit, but it's probably fair to say that as late as 1400, compared to Europe, the Chinese and other Asian societies still had tech superior technological capabilities in at least fields we know about, shipbuilding, navigation, metallurgy, hydraulics, textiles and engineering and so on. But you see the Europeans closing the gap. By the time that the first Jesuits arrive in China in 1582, they already start noticing that China in some technological areas was backward. And this is in the writings of Matteo Ricci, who was one of the first to arrive there. Many of the skills that the Chinese used to have deteriorated during the later Ming centuries or were lost. Making. Still in 1550, I think, Asia still is a highly skilled class of artisans. And Europeans sell around the globe to get these things. But they are making progress and they are catching up. And so in the 15th and 16th century, European artisans really start making things that are eye-popping, you know, clocks, eyeglasses, movable font, navigational instrument, high-skilled products. Uh, here's one example that I like. This is a man called Gianello Turiani. Just a recent book was written about him by, by Zanetti. You know, I really am an, an amazing character. It isn't just Leonardo and these, these, these other household names. Okay, This is an unbelievably talented uh, uh, engineer who could build um, almost anything. And so by the time we reach 1700, so the eve of the Industrial Revolution, it's clear that European artisans had advanced a lot. And this is, I think, particularly true in Britain, where artisans were making clocks and telescopes and instruments and, and, and pumps, and after 1712, of course, steam engines. But it's not just in Britain, and the fact that Britain was the first in the Industrial Revolution, we shouldn't rule out what the Continentals did. Uh, here are two examples I like. This is uh, the digestive duck that was made by a Frenchman called the, uh, it's a toy, really, and, but it, it, it shows an incredible mechanical ability. Um, this is Jacques de Vaucanson, one of the great uh, French engineers of the 18th century. And here's something very close to my heart, but also a this is the Cremona Violin Museum of 1720. You know, they, these Cremona violins were just miracles of precise and, and, and high quality uh, artisanship of the, 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 the kind that you just wouldn't see a, a century at all before. Now, I want to emphasize one thing, and that is what matters here is not just the average ability of European artisans, but particularly they're the most skilled and dexterous, those who could work with very high precision and accuracy, what the engineers called low-tolerance manufacturing. And this, I think, is, is a good example of the critical role played by upper-tail human capital, which disproportionately drives technological change and productivity growth, as I've argued at sort of ad nauseum. And we sort of roughly know who these people are. Uh, Clockmakers, watchmakers, iron workers, uh, instrument makers, engineers, and especially millwrights. So here are two examples from the recent literature.
touring to actually try to measure that. One is Kelly and Ograda's 2017 QJE paper, in which they showed that even without any sort of major breakthroughs, the real price of watches fell by about 1.3% between 1685 and 1810, just a result of better artisans, a finer division of labor, and sort of learning by doing and micro-inventions. Something very similar for month's work uh, in, in the price of firearms, which shows a uh, remarkably similar uh, finding, which is that the total factor productivity of pistol making is, uh, is uh, rising at about 1.1%. This is more, a bit earlier. And so these are just two examples of how European artisans are getting better. In addition, of course, there's materials. And because beyond workmanship, what counts is high quality materials. And so the mechanics of the Industrial Revolution depended very much on their tools and results of a multitude of these high quality files, punches, drill bits, saws, dyes, things like that, much of British and later continental manufacture couldn't have flourished. And I think it'd be by 1700, before the Industrial Revolution, Britain already has a reputation of produce, producing the best files in Europe. And so for to make those tools, you know, you need spring and machine parts and so on and so forth. And what you really need is high quality steel. And Sheffield is the place where high quality steel was made. Most famous of these is Benjamin Huntsman, you know, perfected the so-called crucible process in 1740. But in fact, there were many other so-called boutique steel makers who made expensive, but extremely high quality steel that could be used to make the machine parts and the tools that were needed. And, you know, this is another new insight. I mean, after I wrote this, I discovered to someone to my delight. that actually Friedrich Engels in his condition of the working class in England made the same point. You know, he attributed the development of England's industrial might to the high quality tools and machinery that made it possible, thanks uh, to steel. And so what I want to end with by pointing out that so here we have had attitudes and we had aptitudes. And the nice thing about it is that these two interacted and, and, and worked together. And so the, there's a growing belief in Europe that this sort of separation between people who know things and people who make things, you know, what the, the French call the savant and the fabricant, um, that these should talk to each other and cooperate. And, and I think um, the notion is that science is supposed to serve practical purposes. And that is what I, people call the Baconian program. And that, Newton himself said not for the purpose of bare speculation, but for workaday use, um, and that any practitioner should find them readily applicable in his measuring, you know, and same is true, of course, for calculus and so on. And so what we see in Europe is what I have called the industrial uh, enlightenment. Okay? Ever before do we see scientists who are not just good scientists, but they are deeply interested in practical problems of production and manufacture, and they have no qualms in getting dirt under their fingernails. And these, you know, so these, no ivory towers for them. So think of Priestley, you know, one of Britain's great intellectuals of the, of the 18th century. So he discovered oxygen in 1774, but he also invented, God bless him, pencil eraser, you know, these are very mundane inventions, okay? And so, it's often, of course, it's, it's the same person who combines knowledge and doing. So here's my favorite, uh, Industrial Enlightenment person, he's a Frenchman. This is René Royaumur. These are his dates. And, you know, he's trained as a mathematician and he's sort of a, an, an academic entrepreneur, I guess you could call him. But he wrote an enormous amount about the properties of iron and steel, about porcelain and glazing, about egg incubation. He wrote two books about entomology and agricultural pests. He showed the feasibility of glass. I mean, on and on and on and on and on. And I think that kind of intellectual I think, becomes more and more typical in Europe. And of course, in Britain, famously, this connection between scientists and industrialists was socially ingrained. None more famous, of course, this is the Lunar Society of Birmingham that everybody's heard of, and you, you can see, you know, uh, Watt and Erasmus Darwin and so on sitting around the table. There's the moon outside because it's the Lunar Society. I mean, they only meet at full moon. But, I think, but these kind of societies existed all over Britain, and in fact, many of them were transplanted to the continent. And this is, the, the, I think, the deep understanding that science and technology are supposed to work together and mutually enforce each other. And so 
the genius then of the Industrial Enlightenment movement isn't just that they believed in progress, I showed you early on, but actually suggest a program in which it was to be achieved and then to carry out that program. Okay? And the program is two components. One I, I talked about, which is the advancement of technologies, skills, and knowledge. And the other is, of course, the improvement of institutions. That's what I've left aside, but very, very much part of it. And the truth is, you know, this project succeeded beyond anyone's wildest dreams. And by 1850, and probably a lot earlier, I think Europe had left the rest of the world far behind. Now, in all fairness, okay, these ideas and institutions could be adopted by non-European nations. And those that did so successfully, particularly the ideas, were able to close the divergence fairly quickly, of course, Japan being the sort of example. But it turns out that diffusion of, of culture and institutions is slower than you'd expect. And I think the gap hasn't been closed as of yet. And, you know, there's a big question to what extent institutions can readily be transplanted from one society to another. And that, of course, makes the questions about whether the, you can create an institution and cultural environment in which uh, technology can thrive, transferable. And so that, that's still a big question. But insofar that other societies can and did adopt European techniques, the gap was closing. And so when it is fully closed, I think we can drop the concept of the great divergence and start talking about the great convergence. But I predict that that will take a fair amount of time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joel. That was a really tremendous um, talk, opening up so many different possibilities for uh, people to raise questions about. And um, as I predicted on the great big themes of history. So we have lots of questions uh, come in. And so I will try and gather one or two of them together. They're not the same questions, but maybe they can they have some relationship um, when we look at them. Uh, so I'm going right back to the beginning here. Um, where have we got to? Um, yes, so this is a question of, the first question was from Aria Petra. I'm not sure that's the right name quite pronounced, but I hope so. Um, who says, isn't the great enrichment that happened during the post-war period due to the long period of relative peace and globalization and not due to European colonialism? Could you please elaborate on this? And I just wanted to add in, um, perhaps this is part of the, your, your lecture title is Knowledge as a Source of the Great Divergence. And I wonder whether this is another aspect, which is another source of the Great Divergence, or whether you think it's... Uh, a, not anything to do with it. Well, you know, let, let me sort of expand the question a little bit, and that is to say, you know, is to what extent is this sort of peaceful political environment necessary for um, for economic uh, or continued economic growth? Now, it's fair to say that the. Uh, if you look at the long period of the Pax Britannica between 1815 and 1914, you know, Europe was a relatively peaceful place. There were a few small wars, but they didn't last very long and they were localized in space, so it's peaceful. Um, but what has always struck me, and I always point this out to my students, is there's something quite remarkable about the 20th century, which is that it's not peaceful. You know, there are two bloody uh, world wars and the you know, Cold War and, you know, the endless trouble. But it actually doesn't slow things down. Uh, you know, little blips uh, here and there with the Great Depression and so on. But roughly speaking, you know, it seems to me that in an earlier age, sort of a self-inflicted cataclysm like World War I should have returned Europe to barbarism and to the Stone Age. But that's not at all what happened. Um, war, it turns out, is no longer able to do what it used to do in the past, which is you know, set countries back for centuries, like the 30 Years War did in Germany, for instance. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. The reason is, I think, that the more economic growth is based on useful knowledge, the harder it is to reverse with violence, you know, uh, because you can't get rid of the knowledge unless you kill everybody who owns that knowledge and burn all the library. That's not, that's not going to happen. And so what happens is that you see these countries who are bombed to smithereens in World War II, like Japan and Germany, and they, you know, they look like, you know, complete, you know, messes. 
and yet they, they bounced back fairly quickly. Why? Because the knowledge that they had to build in, in the, 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 their prosperity, that knowledge is still there and they just bring it back. And I think that's, uh, that's I think, one of the important things to realize is when you have, when economic growth is based say, primarily on trade and uh, commerce and finance, then a major political event can actually wipe it out for centuries. You know, the, the, the best example I can think of is you think about the Roman world. So the Roman world has fairly little technological progress, but there's a lot of gains from trade because the Romans you know, used the Mediterranean as a trading hub. But then, you know, when, 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 the, when the politics change and there is more and more attacks on Rome, prosperity disappears and you get years and centuries of poverty. Now you can't that you cannot do in a world that's based on knowledge, or you can, but it's much harder to do, and nobody has today succeeded. That's of the good news. The bad news is that because knowledge is sort of irreversible and you can't put the genie back into the bottle, there's some cases in which we would like to do that because it's of course always possible that war gets to be so devastating that it wipes out everything. I, I, I shall say no more, but clearly that that's that's on everybody's mind. But so the connection between politics and, and war and economic development is actually complex. And one of the things that changed during the Industrial Revolution is the dynamic of growth that makes it much less reversible because it's based on knowledge. Maybe that's, that's what I'll Great, thanks. Um, a question which I think takes, you, takes us back to the right at the beginning of your lecture, which comes from Peter Duxbury. Um, he asks, is useful knowledge the ability I, maybe it's if useful knowledge is the ability to exploit other people and natural resources, uh, is it actually useful in the sense of uh, that exploitation is a way of destroying the planet through materialism? But at the same time, I think there's an interesting aspect of this, which he suggests is connected with a kind of eugenics and superiority of those who have knowledge over those who, who don't, which might be at the, one of the attitudes that you're perhaps referring to at the linking up to the beginning of your lecture about um, the situation we currently are in and the reflection of that on, on, on the past? Well, I would think that, in a way, the exploitation and domination of non-European nations is, is a byproduct of improved knowledge. What Europeans are getting... Useful knowledge is basically a means to harness the forces of nature for your purposes. Okay, so, you know, that, it could be, you know, better milling of grain or making a better steel, but it could also, of course, be better guns and, and ships that could help you dominate dominate others. But the purpose, I think, of, of useful knowledge is, is very general, and you can use it for, for, um, uh, for whatever you want. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that so Europeans conquered the rest of the world in, in sort of a wave of absent-mindedness as the old gag goes. I mean, it's not quite that. But it's probably fair to say that they acquired technological knowledge and scientific knowledge and then discovered that that also helped them dominate others. And it's also quite clear that this is what we call an economic and a disequilibrium, right? I mean, you can't do this forever, which is why colonial empires collapse after 1945 because it's clear that if you have this, these weapons that you use to dominate others, eventually they're going to get them too and then uh, you can keep doing this. And this is, of course, precisely what happened to the colonial empires and, you know, good riddance, I think we would, we, we would all say. But, uh, but I, I do think that, that uh, the, the knowledge to control others and the sort of sense of superiority, that's not, Europeans don't really have a monopoly over that um, you know most society actually think that they are better than everybody else you know none le none less more so than the chinese so the chinese always had have this deep sense that they are civilization and everybody else uh, is a barbarian and that's that's deeply ingrained in chinese civilization uh, certainly during the empire and so um there's this famous uh, uh, event in which this English uh, emissary uh, arrives at, at the, at the uh, court of the Chinese emperor, uh, Lord McCartney, and ingenuity, 
And they say, nee, sort of look at this, and they politely applaud. And then they say, no, 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 this is where any good. We would have invented it ourselves. And this sort of notion of cultural is, is, is worldwide. And, and, and Europeans, I mean, I, I'm not here to whitewash any of their crimes and, and misdeeds, but their arrogance, but if it were important, we would have invented it. They look at what others have and they say, gee, these guys got something we don't have. Let's go get it. That's that's that that's that's what they do. Now you know they also it was easy and because it was cheap, and um, and these, these and terrible crimes were being were being committed. But I think that in the end, and that that is very much part of the story. But the question is, what made that possible? And the answer is, I think that in the end, Europeans have better tools. And that, that's, that's central for my, for to the way I see it. Maybe I'll leave it at that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we have several questions which are, um, in a sense, um, sort of asking you to open up the problem that there's Europe and, and the rest of the world. So picking up that, that actually these are rather large spaces with a lot of differentials. So, for instance, Yalin Karagal suggests that we you know that that uh, the traditional traditionalism of the Muslim world is limited, that certain parts of the Muslim world are not so highly traditional, and certainly the Ottomans or, or associated that the Persians um, had less commitment to the faith in the same way that other parts of the world might be um, more committed. And I think another another point um, was from Tancredi Rapone, if I get that name pronounced correctly, talking about the role of the Catholic Church um, and therefore the secularization or potentially the Protestant Reformation affected these things. So asking you in a sense to say, sort of pointing out perhaps that um, this great big story is, is wonderful, but perhaps underneath there's a patchwork which is a little bit more complicated on all sides. I would be the first to admit that it is much more complicated than what I think is a particular segment of it. And I would never, you know, if you wanted to give a good answer, you could write a 600-page book about this because it is complicated. I would be the last person um, to disagree with it. And I've left out, you know, <laughs> most of my notes and, 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 and my thoughts about this. But I, I would put it this way. The, uh, the question about Islam I think is quite right, and I did not mean to say that you know completely homogeneous and at all, and not at all. And yet, when you look at the numbers for the Islamic world as a whole, and for the entire Islamic world even today, and you compare them with non-Islamic countries, clearly there is something about uh, these countries. Uh, that is striking, which is their publication rate, their ability to achieve original technology. It's 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 there, and they're quite hugely capable of it. And in you know for centuries they led the world. But I think the decline of the Ottoman Empire and the decline of you know basically the Middle East as an economic center uh, in the 18th and 19th century relative to Europe is completely unmistakable. And, um, and I think their ability to generate and even adopt Western technology was extremely, was extremely limited. Now, I'm not blaming Islam as such. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not very big on, on sort of blaming religion as such. I'm, I, I want to see religion as a part of culture. Uh, but, uh, but I think Culture matters, and insofar as religion correlates with culture, um, yes, it, it matters. And so, the question about Catholicism and Protestantism is one of the oldest and most widely debated things in economic history. And there's no way that I can do it justice in the minutes that I that I have left. Uh, I am no great fan of um, Weber and this of or the way people interpret Weber saying, gee, you know, Protestantism is what we needed. And, 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 and uh, it, it's, that's just, that's just not, that's just not, not right. Um, I do think that the Reformation, the signal of the Reformation sense is, however, critical. And that is people are willing and able to come up with radical new ideas and exploit 
the political fragmentation of Europe in order to drive that home. And of course, that's exactly, you know, why Luther and Calvin, all these people were, were, were successful, because in each in their own way, were able to exploit the political fragmentation to, and then the, the Catholics respond in the Counter-Reformation, which is precisely the way sort of a competitive market is supposed to work. And um, both, neither in the Islamic world and much le even less so in China, do we see that level of competition functioning. And I think that, I think, is a critical component. Okay, Joel, we have lots and lots of questions. Unfortunately, we don't have time for them. They all say what a wonderful presentation uh, that you've given. So thank you so much on behalf of everyone thank here you. for such a wonderful presentation. Thank you, audience, for coming and giving such wonderful questions. Uh, and we hope you come to the next uh, lecture in the Hayek series. Thank you, Joel. It's just great.